Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you'd like to be open your Bibles, we won't have slides tonight. We'll be looking at several different verses and coming out of our text in John, the fourth chapter, beginning in 23 and 24, as we study tonight about worshiping the Father in truth. And how important is that? Primarily what we'll study tonight is how important is it to God? What a wonderful blessing it is to be a part of a congregation with so many good people. Uh, Tyler Ofield just got in from Belinda Parkway Church of Christ, and he preached there tonight at their 5 o'clock service. And uh, that's the first lesson that he ever preached. And uh, he did a tremendous job, and we're thankful for him and for the great job that he did tonight. It's just wonderful to be a part of a congregation where people jump in to the Lord's kingdom and they do their part. Each of us doing what we can do uh, in partnership with God makes a powerful difference in the kingdom. And let's all continue to look for that. Also, we're saddened about the announcement of Bud's uh, leaving the work here at Mount Juliet. I don't have to tell most of you what a tremendous, tremendous blessing that he has been and what a godly man and a great minister and counselor that he is. And uh, he's been here for 20 years. And many of us uh, have been here for many years also. And I, I think that I've come in the office every week for over 15 years now and uh, have just enjoyed that relationship with Bud immensely. And as I think about this, the only thing that I can say at this time is what I have continually told myself is I genuinely and fervently thank God for the years that we've had together. Uh, what a blessing that he has been uh, to this congregation. And so uh, as we are saddened by uh, his not working here longer in the future, let us also be deep, deeply grateful uh, for what God blessed us with in these years that we've had together. Worship God in truth. But what does that mean? Is there really anything such as truth? Well, when Jesus says that in, in John the fourth chapter in verse 23 and 24, he surely would not have been speaking about something that did not exist when he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Turn over just a few pages in your Bible to John, the 18th chapter. Do you remember how Pilate had a brief wrestling match with this concept of truth? You remember his reply to Jesus in John the 18th chapter in 38 while he was under arrest and from this he would be crucified. But here Pilate said to him in 38, what is truth? And the irony of him asking that, it was the result of what Jesus said when not only Jesus brought up the topic of truth, but in essence, he had just defined truth. And so it's interesting, Jesus gave somewhat of a definition of truth and Pilate's response to it is, what is it? And, and you could almost imagine Jesus saying, were you not just listening to me? 
But apparently this wasn't the time or the setting for that, and so Jesus didn't say that. But now let's go back and read verse 37. What is it that Jesus said? Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What is the truth? Jesus says, I'm the one that has borne witness to the truth. And if you're confused about what it is, just listen to my voice and you're going to hear the truth over and over. Why? Because just a few pages back in your Bible, in John the 14th chapter and verse 6, Jesus clearly said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus was truth personified. Everything that Jesus said was a message of truth. Jesus was a witness of the truth. All we had to do is learn of Jesus, listen to Jesus, learn Jesus himself. Who is he? He's truth. And yet today, even today, we still wrestle with the concept of truth. Sometimes it might be out of legitimate ignorance, but other times it's because maybe more like what Pilate was doing. You see, the truth is Pilate didn't want to get down to the bottom of what truth was. He wanted to handle this guy as quickly as he could, wash his hands of him, and hope that he doesn't affect his political career. It was the coward's way out to say, I'm not really looking for truth. I think about a man who was known, very well known for uh, his apologetics. And a father of a college-age girl called him and said, my daughter has always been a faithful Christian. She is going to college in the town that you live in. And she is telling us that she no longer trusts the reliability of the scriptures and she is really in doubt as to whether or not Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God or the Messiah. Would you be able to meet her for coffee and visit with her and, and see if you could help her in any way? He said, sure. I'd, I'd be glad to do that. And so he called her and she was willing to talk and they sat down at a coffee shop. And, and so he asked her, what are you struggling with? And she revealed her struggles about the reliability of Scripture and Christ as Messiah. And as they sat and talked, he answered every doubt and angle that she brought up. But yet she continued to doubt. And then he said to her, let's just say that at this moment I could answer every doubt you have and every concern you have. And if I could, would you live the Christian faith? And she kind of bowed her head a little bit and she looked up and she said, no. And he said, that's what I thought. The problem is not that you don't believe in the reliability of the scripture or that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The problem is you've begun to live an immoral life and it's easier for you to say, I don't believe in God anymore 
than to say, I believe, but I just don't want to live for him. And he said, am I right on that? And she nodded her head in agreement. Listen, truth does not set out to make friends. Truth is non-negotiable. Truth is what it is. You can vow and declare that there is no such thing as gravity, but just because you say there's not doesn't mean you're going to fly away in the next few minutes. Truth is truth. And whether we're talking about morality or if we're talking about worship, no matter what it is, we as humans struggle with having a king in our life, one that reigns over our life and gives us truth, and we struggle to say, I'll submit to you. Your will be done. Because the fleshly nature in me says, I'd like to debate that, I'd like to change that, I'd like to alter that. Because after all, there's some things that I'd like to do in worship. There's some changes I'd like to make in worship. There are some things that are more convenient for me. There are things that I would enjoy more. There are things that are more entertaining. There are things that I believe that would touch my friends' lives if we would just start doing that in worship. And we could go on and on and on. And yet we hear very strongly the words of Jesus. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Truth is the standard. Do you know that there's a bureau of of the federal government of weights and measurements. It's a little over 100 years old. I believe it started in 1901. And before that, across America, there were eight different measurements for a gallon of milk. Before that, in Brooklyn alone, there were four different legal measurements of a foot. It was said that at that time in the 1900s, over 50% of the scales in grocery stores were wrong. What did that bureau do? They set down first to establish what is a true foot. What is a true measurement for a gallon? What is the true weight for an ounce or for a pound? And once they established that truth, they held it up in the sense to go around and every business had to be regulated by that standard. Today, I ask you to imagine the Lord saying, I want to hold up to you this standard of what worship should be. And this is the truth. I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. And that sounds so simple. But tonight I want to ask you, why is it that all through the scriptures, when we see a transition in history, one of the first things God always did was showed us how individuals had a hard time dealing with his standard of truth. Now one, we've mentioned several times lately, but just so we can see this, we'll mention this one quickly and then the others are ones we haven't mentioned lately. But I just want you to see this. Whether it's the beginning of human history or it's the beginning of the Levitical priesthood or if it's the beginning of kings giving to the children of Israel 
or if it's the beginning of the New Testament and Jesus, his ministry on this earth, or if it's when the church was young, over and over and over. What on one hand you'd say is real simple. Let's just worship the way God wants us to worship. And instead, each time we see this transition, God says, let me show you a story. Let me show you how man has always tried to change what I've asked man to do in their offerings and their sacrifice and the worship to me. You probably know the first one, Genesis, the fourth chapter. You remember in Genesis, the fourth chapter, in verse three, we have... Now I can read along with y'all. In Genesis 4 and verse 3, we have Cain offering up the fruit of the ground as God has asked him, or it should have been as God has asked him, but it wasn't. And then Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. And notice the Lord respected Abel. And remember this respect here, the, the, the definition of this word in the Hebrew is the idea of inspecting and finding favor. And so when he looked at Abel and his offering, he inspected it and he found favor. But notice verse five, he did not respect. In other words, he inspected and he did not find favor with Cain and his offering. This made Cain angry. And so in six, the Lord asked him why he is angry. And in verse seven, it is simply and powerfully and profoundly stated God says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, Cain, I don't accept just anything. And what you have offered me, I've inspected it. It's not what I've asked. I don't accept it. Now, you know that all you have to do to change this is live up to the standard of truth. All you have to do is do what I have asked you to do. If you would do well, some of your translations say, if you would do righteousness, but he didn't want to do it. Let's see another example when we see the Levitical priesthood beginning. As you turn to Leviticus, the 10th chapter, you may notice as you're turning there that, that throughout Leviticus, it is an introduction into uh, this priesthood. For example, the paragraph headings in chapter one is about the burnt offerings. In chapter two, the grain offering. In chapter three, the peace offering. In chapter four, the sin offering. In chapter five, the trespass offering. And we could keep going. Seven is... There's another trespass offering. Eight is Aaron and his sons consecrated. And verse nine, the priestly ministry begins. I'm sorry, chapter nine, the priestly ministry begins. And so then the question is, what's the first story going to be? Now that this ministry is in place, this Levitical priesthood is in place, what is the first story going to be? Look at the 10th chapter. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, here's the key, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who came near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. That had to be difficult for Aaron. On one hand, Aaron would want to look at his sons that are deceased and cry out to God, why have you done what you've done? And it's almost like Moses gets over to him before he can do it and he says, hey, don't say it. You remember what the Lord requires. 
The Lord requires his priests to live in a holy way, implying what your sons did was profane. What the Lord requires of the priest is for their service, their religious service, to bring glory to God. And your sons blatantly disobeyed God. Why? They offered up the fire and offering the incense, which he had not commanded. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, here's all the things I don't want you to do. He just simply said, here's the way I want it to be. And they brought in into their worship things that he had not commanded. So the tone was set with the death penalty issued in by God. Let's read about King Saul. In 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter, 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter, he's very nervous. They're surrounded by the Philistines. We see in verse 5 that that is the case taking place. He is distressed greatly in verse 6. This is 1 Samuel, the 12th chapter. We see in verse 9 that he asked for a burnt offering to be brought down and peace offering also. And the end of verse 9 says he offered the burnt offerings. Verse 10, now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offerings that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Now keep in mind, Samuel was the only one that had the right to do that. He did not have the right to do what he just did. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. See how it keeps going back to a standard of truth? You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord will have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Why? The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Isn't it interesting that it was out of fear and the combination that he says, I felt compelled. I felt. When's the last time your feelings have ever been a standard of truth? I'm not saying your feelings have not been truthful. But when's the last time your feelings have ever been a standard of truth? They haven't been. See, feelings come and go, and it's a good thing that they're not a standard of truth because we wouldn't have anything stable or anything secure in our life. We make a terrible mistake whenever we decide how to obey God, how to worship God, when we do it based off of a feeling. I just feel like this is the way God would want. I want to encourage you, anytime that is about to roll off of your tongue, you need to then turn around and say, but that's garbage. It really doesn't matter what I feel like God would think or say. What I need to do is go back and say, what has God said? What is the will of God in this? You see, he felt compelled that the thing that he ought to do, he was looking at enemies surrounding him, he was looking at his own people scattering. Samuel was the one that could offer this offering uh, and keep the commandments of God. 
And finally, when, when all of this situation came together, he felt compelled that the thing he ought to do is go ahead and disobey God in an effort to offer this sacrifice to God. And yet we see that that wasn't at all the thing that he should do. Now let's go over to the New Testament. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, we see God, uh, Christ upon this earth as he did many times dealing with the Pharisees. And as he's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees, he is calling them out at the beginning of 15 for them dishonoring their parents and trying to fulfill a tradition that they called Corbin. And, and that was their way of saying, I, I've given my gift to the temple. I don't have to take care of my, my aging parents anymore. And, and of course in this, they were disobeying God. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the end of verse six, he says, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And then with an exclamation mark, he calls them hypocrites. And then he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, Let's read verse 8 and 9. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart, that inner person, their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isn't it sad that these individuals probably thought that they were very close to God? In other words, they could hear them own selves speak and their lips spoke words that would talk and convince others how close they were to God. So with their lips, they honored God. But yet Jesus calls them out, quoting Isaiah, and he says, listen, your heart is so far removed from God. And you say, well, wait a minute. I'm saying the right things. Well, why are... Why are you concerned about that? He says, let me show you how far removed your heart is. You're teaching people and you're making it sound like that it is the commandments of God. But in truth, in truth, it is the words of men. Do you see how that works? Today, what if I wanted to mislead you. Pray this would never happen. But what if I wanted to mislead you and I wanted you to follow a doctrine that was created by men? How many of you would fall for it if I just simply and bluntly said to you today, there are things that are contrary to the will of God that I would really like to convince all of you to do because that's what false teachers do. They want to lead people in their direction. And so what, what I want to do is convince you to leave what God has said and follow me. That probably wouldn't work so well. But what if instead I could say, hmm, the only way I'm going to convince people to leave God and follow me is to convince them that they're not actually leaving God and that what I'm telling them is actually of God. And then they'll think they're following God when actually they're leaving God and following me. And that's what's happening here. And we're studying that in this particular lesson because of the way the beginning of verse 9 read, in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What was that about worship? In vain they worship me. In other words, that worship is vain, which means worthless, 
are empty. Can you imagine Jesus standing outside as we are leaving the building tonight? And can you imagine Jesus literally meeting some of us in the parking lot and saying, you know, it was really worthless for you to be here tonight. You say, but, but I came to worship. Yeah. But you don't follow the commandments of God. You have your own ways that you are living your life. And so therefore, your worship is vain. Now we're going to see it one more time before we close, but what I'm wanting you to see tonight is that from the beginning of the Bible and every major transition of time, God shows us story after story to say, I am not accepting your worship if you're going to do it your way. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Let's look at the last one that we'll look at. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. The church has begun. The church in Corinth is still relatively young. They are abusing the Lord's Supper in many ways in which they are partaking it. And we'll read simply verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, isn't that amazing that these individuals were coming together to worship and instead of their lives being blessed because they came together to worship, Paul calls them out and says, you're actually leaving a worse person than when you came. And again, they could probably throw up their hands and say, Paul, what are you talking about? We just came to worship. And he says, that is how bad your worship is. You leave worse than when you came. Perhaps several of you have seen in the news recently, in Malaysia, for many of us, would be a very, very different type of news story. There was tourists that climbed to the top of a mountain. I believe there was 10 of them. And their way to celebrate was that they stripped naked. And then some of them posted it on Facebook. A few days later, there was an earthquake, 5.9. 16 people died and many were injured. You see, the locals there, for ages, have believed that there is a spirit that lives in the mountains. And they believe that what the tourists did was highly immoral. And they believe that the spirit was punishing and shaking the earth because of the act of immorality, the indecency. And so as a result, those individuals are under arrest. And it's going to be interesting to see how they are tried and what punishment they have. But the reason I share that with you today is isn't it interesting that the locals believe that there is this power that is due respect, this power that in a sense is governing. And if that power is not obedient, 
that you've been disrespectful to that one in which you're not obedient. I don't mean at all to lower and demean God to be a spirit that lives in the mountain, but I couldn't help but read that story in the news this past week and think about how awesome would it be if everybody that said they were worshiping God realized that he is alive, he is powerful, and he has given us the standard of which he asked. And we approached him out of great reverence and great respect. And we truly did seek to worship him in spirit and in truth. Tonight, is God some kind of weakling that you play games with? Is worship some kind of social club that you just hope you can figure out ways to enjoy it? Or do you see God as the Almighty? And you come week after week here to pour out your love and adoration to the one you love based on what he asked us to do. How does God want us to worship? Let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Tonight, if we can help you take steps closer to God in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. We'd love to encourage you. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, or if you have begun that journey with him and along the way you've lost your way and you'd like to come back to him, he's a loving God. He's a God that gave his son to die to redeem us so that that veil, if you will, has been rent open and we truly do have the opportunity now to worship because of his great love.